So what would it take to return society to a biblical, honest standard of money and banking? Well, a lot, but in all possible cases, the necessary ingredient would have to be a strong commitment to adhere to those biblical ethics. Without a willingness to sacrifice up front and to stay disciplined throughout the process, I don't think any scenario would end in success. Now, these conditions are simple. They are the basic conditions, whatever the catalyzing event may be to make this happen. It could be a massive revival. It could be a crisis or a failure of the federal government. It could be a successful state or local alternative or a resistance movement of some sort that is successful. It could be the legal advent of competing currencies. It could be some political miracle by which society commits to this gradual change of the system over time, which is probably the least likely scenario. Uh, so let us discuss first the larger goals we want to aim at, and then let us talk about the steps an average person can take to prepare for a biblical system personally. Uh, so what is that overarching goal in regard to money and banking? In the broad sweep of things, it should be to return to biblical standards of just weights and measures and the enforcement of contracts. Uh, this means, of course, very simply, uh, the enforcement of the Eighth and Ninth Commandment, thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not steal, within the sphere of money, of money and banking, uh, as well as within the rest of society. Uh, this means an end to all fractional reserve banking, as well as all other forms of uh, artificial money inflation. Any bank or other institution that lends so much as a fraction of a penny more money than it has in hard assets in reserve should immediately be liable to prosecution for fraud. Uh, stated in more, a little more practical terms, the moment a bank shows the slightest inability or unwillingness to redeem its checks or paper currency for gold or silver, then it should be considered in breach of contract and liable to prosecution. Uh, second, this means also that anyone would be able to withdraw up to the total amount of their deposits in the form of hard assets, and of course that's what we mean when we talk about redeeming currency for gold and silver coin, and they should be able to do that at any time, unless of course you have a time-sensitive uh, agreed-upon maturity date ahead of time that's a voluntary contract. Uh, third, there should be no legal tender laws. No one should be forced anywhere, anytime to use or to accept any particular form of money. Uh, forms of payment for debts, uh, rents, other contractual obligations of all sorts should be agreed upon freely and stipulated in the contracts up front as a part of the contract. That's very simple. Standard business exchanges, which are not uh, obviously contractual, uh, let the free market determine what money will be. And while a business should be free, uh, perfectly free to decline any payment in uh, regard in, in, the, in whatever terms are accepted, they would obviously be unwise to do so because that's what excess money throughout society. Um, so uh, these are only the basics. Uh, only hard money is allowed, or at least money that is backed one-to-one -one by hard assets in reserve. The redemption of any bank paper for hard money upon notice, and the abolition of all compulsion in forms of money, which is, of course, no legal tender laws. Could such a society be established? Uh, yeah, it could. 
Uh, but like I said, not without lots of commitment and lots of personal fortitude during a period of transition. Because what would this look like? Uh, well, first, if we automatically just switched everything overnight uh, to honest money, uh, to honest money in banking, without some kind of wise planning and foresight, well, the economic system would contract so severely it would collapse for most people overnight. Uh, you'd have a period of chaos would ensue, people would starve, uh, crime would explode, martial law would probably be imposed, and this great public crisis would be used as a black eye upon all monetary reform for years to come. You would have these unscrupulous politicians trying to nix all future attempts by pointing to the great chaos that ensued because of it. Uh, because societies are simply not able uh, to withstand abrupt structural changes overnight, at least not like that. So instead, we need to turn the boat slowly. We have to work out the implications for all the many contracts, business relationships, related investments, and all types of, of those things in the interim period. Uh, so here, here are just outline the steps to abolish fractional reserve banking. Uh, each of which would, of course, pose their unique challenges. But these are the outlines. Number one, we have to audit the Fed and audit the U.S. Treasury. And we have to do that in order to determine what is the true inflation ratio of paper against hard assets. Number two, uh, for all existing institutions, all legal agreements as far as possible, and of course this would be a major task, we have to anticipate the ramifications of deflating the money supply in correlation to the amount of gold and silver at least that exist when, uh, based on the audit that we do, when that uh, paper supply is contracted. And of course, number three, we have to readjust all prices and financial figures according to that calculated ratio. And this, like I said, would create uh, deflation of the monetary system. Uh, and finally, uh, number four, we have to move all treasury and Fed-owned silver and gold from those government vaults into common circulation. If we immediately required honest money in banking, the money supply would probably contract massively overnight. Now I say probably because we may actually not even know how much gold and silver is in the Fed vaults and, and in the treasury vaults and at Fort Knox. Um, uh, and in those places where they store gold, or indeed if there even is any gold left, whether some people suspect it's not actually there. Uh, so we have no sure idea of what the initial monetary base would be against which we would have to begin calculating the current measure of inflation. Uh, although there are government figures, there's a lot of speculation whether it's, they're accurate or not. Uh, however, since the current monetary base is actually built largely upon government debt instruments, which are promises, as we said before, to tax the people in the future for repayment. In addition to the gold we assume exists, uh, we know that any return to, the, to honest money would immediately contract the supply to a great degree, and so we would have to face that. If so, and it's likely, this means that prices would fall drastically across the board on goods, on services, on labor, on pretty much everything. Consumer prices would fall, but consequently so would wages, uh, by about the same proportion, we assume. Uh, and so this would, in many areas, would be a wash. Uh, for example, uh, a grocer 
would be able to charge less money for the things he's selling, but his overhead costs would fall accordingly as well. Uh, so what, in the, what is a very simplistic view of standard business and exchange, really not much would change. And these changes would be apparent to everybody. And we would all see them, we would all feel them, feel them, and the shock that would come from this drastic reduction in numbers could, could probably easily be set with just a small amount of preparatory education of the public. Um, get the word out, it wouldn't be very hard. Uh, what would not be apparent uh, apparently fall, at least in proportion to everything else, would be all previous obligations, debts, mortgages, etc., which were previously written in dollars and their long term. So while incomes would fall drastically, let's just say, for example, arbitrarily by 90%, people would still be seeing a $1,000 house payment every month, their car payments at several hundred dollars a month, and you know, under normal conditions, deflation hurts debtors because it has that effect. But of course, this would not be normal conditions. Okay, and this uh, problem that I'm describing could, I think, be addressed with simply a little bit of wisdom and forethought. Uh, it would have to be addressed, granted, before any honest money could be uh, in practice. But it could probably be addressed by simply main maintaining something like uh, what I would call a last call dollar to gold ratio uh, for the duration of those previous obligations, which would be grandfathered into the new system. Uh, this is a ratio that would be made especially for and only for pre-existing contracts. Uh, at the time any legislation was passed that would end the use of all inflationary paper in the future, all, of, all Fed paper, etc then whatever gold was worth in dollars at that last call, so to speak, would become the fixed reference point by which a dollar equivalent could be calculated into the future. Uh, and by that standard, all of those pre-existing contracts would be uh, fulfilled to their end. So uh, those old mortgages and those old contracts could simply be paid off in the new money calculated by its equivalent to the old inflated money. And really, it's, it's, there's, it's really quite simple, even if it sounds complicated. Then we have the problem of getting the gold and silver into the hands of the public. Supposing that the gold actually exists, it really would only take a simple act of Congress to force the Fed to move its gold from its vaults to the Treasury. Um, that's a very small step, but of course it's a necessary step, and it has to be done. A uh, second step would be the more difficult one of equitable distribution somehow of that gold and silver from the reserves of the U.S. Treasury to every account holder in proportion to their previous dollar values of their accounts. And that's uh, not so much difficult as it is just a, a big job. Now once all of the loose ends are tied up, and I've certainly left plenty of loose ends out of what is just really a, a highlighted discussion of the practical consequences. But then local communities and states and even the nation, although again qualifier, I would prefer to leave the legislation as much as possible at the local level. But then those governments could have a biblical system of honest money and banking in place. And from here, once it's in place, here the issue only becomes maintenance of that system, meaning the enforcement of contracts, and that means 
it's courageous, but it has to be done, the swift and immediate punishment of any bank or institution that tried to inflate upon its own reserves. Close it down, liquidate its assets, uh, pay off its creditors. Um, what can the average individual do? These are all big goals. Um, obviously, they're, at, our point, at this point, our options are limited on the, in the big things. But what steps can we take first? Uh, well, the first is personally to purchase some gold and silver while you can. This, of course, is an area in which the average person just walking in is, is subject to dangers and scams and confusion simply because of lack of education in many cases. Uh, so, for example, notice I didn't say invest in gold and silver. Uh, some people like to think of gold and silver, uh, buying gold and silver sp for speculative purposes, hoping that uh, you know, it's, it's going to rise in the future and then they'll sell off their gold for a profit or at least so they expect, just because they don't really think through the system. As part of a preparation for a biblical system of money, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about those transactions at all. Um, I mean, think about it. After all, what are you going to sell your gold for in the future? Uh, more inflated Federal Reserve dollars or digits, depending on how you look at it. And what are you going to do with those dollars then? You're going to use it to buy stuff or save and I mean, that's subject to inflation again. So, um, and if you want to use them to buy stuff, think about it. If inflation costs gold go up, guess what? Gas prices, milk prices, land prices, bread prices, donut prices, everything is going to have been risen by generally the same amount of inflation as gold did. So you haven't really won anything. And on top of that, Consider this, sales of gold bullion after being held for a year are considered capital gains and taxed at the highest capital gains rate, which is 28%. And some people can beat this system, uh, but of course they're the few people who trade in commodities speculation, and that's not the vast majority of people. Uh, just put it bluntly, it's not you and it's not me. Uh, nor is gold very good as an investment for bartering uh, during a time of, of an impending crisis. Uh, in times of crisis, food and water is what you need, not gold. And food and water will be far more valuable than gold. And when the time comes, if that's all you're left with, you can't eat it. So uh, I'm not speaking of any of these things here, although I, we could recommend them in different scenarios. Instead, I'm recommending gold and silver simply as a very conservative, long-term, valuable good that will be the natural choice for money and for the monetary base in a biblical system of money. If you want to prepare for a biblical system, you want to buy some gold. If you want to have money that's always going to be there no matter what happens to the dollar, you want to buy some gold. So I think you should have at least 20% of your long-term savings in the form of gold and silver and consider that nothing short of a good preparation. Now in the meantime, of course, if you're looking at it and still thinking of it as an investment, the price of gold in dollars is going to be a roller coaster ride, like it is with any commodity. And uh, as such, any good roller coaster ride is going to require a good stomach. Uh, and that's for those, of course, who can only think in terms of dollars. So, step one own some gold and silver. Now, this isn't difficult to do, uh, but I will give you some practical tips. Number one, buy only bullion coins, not so-called numismatic coins. Uh, these are antique coins, otherwise specially collectible coins. Uh, they're much more suited to speculators uh, than, the, than they are to the reconstruction of society. 
Number two, try to buy from a dealer who only sells bullion coins. Uh, because if you don't, the others will often try to upsell you, uh, bait and switch you to the collectible coins, which are much more profitable for them. And they use lots of pressure sales tactics to do it, and they're quite good at being persuasive in the process. So stay away from them. Uh, number three, buy coins that only have the lowest premiums or commissions on them. It should be around maybe two and a half, maybe three and a half percent max. Uh, it's fungible slightly. Many people want to buy American gold coins, the golden eagles, so to speak, uh, because the coins are American, you know. And the problem is that these coins offer a much higher premium normally, anywhere from six to nine percent or more, and you, can, and you can get them much cheaper, get other coins much more cheaper. You're not concerned with nationalism and patriotism here, okay? It, you want the gold content, so buy South African Krugerrands, buy gold Mexican pesos, buy some Austrian Coronas. The gold content is the same. They'll do you just fine, and they will cost you, cost you much less to buy. Number four, keep your gold safe. Don't advertise the fact that you're all excited, you just want to show all your friends your new gold coins. Don't tell anybody. Don't show it off. Just keep it quiet. Uh, don't go use a safe deposit box that has, you know, government access. Put your gold in a safe place, a hard-to-find place that's known only to you and your spouse if you have one, and perhaps one very closely trusted friend. Uh, just think through the details of that scenario will help you. Okay, following these simple steps can possibly save you thousands of dollars with a dealer uh, on your first gold purchase. It will put you well ahead of the game in preparation for honest money in society, and it's just a good conservative uh, purchase. Uh, what else can be done besides buying gold? Well, as with previous topics we've talked about, you need to spread the word. You can teach a Sunday school course in your church on a biblical view of honest money and banking. Uh, if you say, well, that sounds too big for me, I would recommend you use Gary North's short little book called Honest Money, Biblical Principles of Money and Banking. Uh, it's available for free online. Download it. Uh, it's about 10 chapters. Make great lessons for a Sunday school class uh, out of that. Uh, from there, you can inform your local and state and national representatives. Send them copies of the book. Send them copies of this video. Uh, talk to your officials. Teach them the lessons that you've learned here in regard to honest money and banking. Uh, that would be very helpful. And it'll also be great, this is just throwing this out, if we had the option simply to move our money to banks which themselves did not practice fractional reserve banking. Now, of course, this is uh, impossible uh, to a certain degree. It doesn't eliminate the fractional reserve that's going on over their heads by the Federal Reserve System. Uh, uh, but it would eliminate this one small corner of it, and, and, and it has to be thought about. The Federal Reserve System currently does not forbid banks from keeping 100% cash reserves in, in their local bank. It just simply doesn't require it. And all banks, as far as I know, choose not to do it. Uh, it is certainly conceivable that some Christian banker or perhaps some libertarian banker out there uh, would, if there is such a thing, uh, would choose to keep 100% reserves in his or her own bank and refuse to lend beyond that base. Okay, this would act as a service to local Christians. It would act as a testimony against the evils of fractional reserve system in, in general, at least to a degree. 
And uh, number three, it would, it would be an example to other banks of how such a system could work. Now, now that bank is probably not going to be as wildly profitable as other banks may be that leverage their fractional reserve power. But then again, for a Christian running a bank, profit, while it's important, is not the ultimate Christian virtue when it comes to money. Obviously, honesty and integrity are, are more important Christian virtues in that regard, as are the Eighth and Ninth Commandments. Uh, now, such a bank wouldn't restore, as I said, biblical money in general, even for the customers of its own bank, for at least two very important and connected reasons. Number one, banks are forbidden by the Federal Reserve System from keeping precious metals as their local branch reserves. So any so-called 100% reserve bank would still only have, at best, uh, vault cash in the form of Federal Reserve notes as its own monetary base. And thus, number two, since the rest of the whole system would still be inflating and inflated the same currency that the, this bank is forced to use, then uh, the devaluation of the money supply overall still devalues the money that's, that's even in that 100% reserve bank. Uh, simply being forced to be part of the system is the problem. Uh, but uh, such a bank can provide a protest vote, so to speak, uh, and a protest example, if you will, against the system that all banks are forced to use today. There is something similar also in, uh, well, I should say similar to 100% reserve banking available in the online gold bank accounts. Uh, these are provided by a couple of website companies, for example, goldmoney.com, bullionvault.com. They have thousands of clients. They're absolutely safe and reliable. Uh, in these systems, you essentially purchase gold with dollars as if you were opening an account and the company maintains that account for you. It's valued in the form of units of gold, and usually a gram of gold, and the vault holds the actual amount of gold for you. The value of the gold, therefore the value of the account, since it's held in terms of a weight of gold, will actually fluctuate over time with the market price. Uh, you can sell that, convert that gold to currency back uh, later, and withdraw the currency if you like later. There are drawbacks to that, of course, uh, there's nothing like a debit card for these accounts. You can't use it like you would a modern checking account. Um, of course, a lot of people may see that as a convenience or as a, as a, as a plus. Uh, but also, every conversion of gold back into units of dollars is considered a sale of gold by the government, and thus it's a taxable event. So uh, if, you have, if you want to keep an account like that, uh, you're going to understand it's going to function basically like a gold-backed savings account, and you don't really want to touch that money very often. Uh, if you do withdraw it, only do it for rare circumstances, for major purchases, if you do it at all. Here's another slightly different angle. You may also consider moving your money to a credit union instead of a bank. Now, granted, the change on the surface of it is not greatly significant, but at least one problematic, uh, problematic aspect of the banks is avoided by doing so. Many people don't know that one of the key factors in the 2008 financial crisis was something called the Community Reinvestment Act. This was an act, I believe, passed under Carter, but it was really expanded and made famous under Bill Clinton in 1995. Now, I've written about this uh, 
not extensively, but a little more detail in my book, God Versus Socialism. I believe it's on page 43. In brief, uh, this act required all federal banks in the Federal Reserve System to make loans to people with poor or no credit. Okay, it was disguised as helping under-income people, um, but it was a recipe for disaster. And when the Fed-induced bubble finally popped, all of these risky loans became the worst part of the system, and many of them were turned into foreclosures overnight. Uh, this act did a couple things. Number one, it filled many middle-class suburban areas uh, with lower-income families that otherwise couldn't have afforded it. And with that, of course, comes crime and increased welfare rates. And number two, uh, it's left entire neighborhoods now with rows of foreclosed and empty homes that will probably never sell. So in short, what I'm trying to say is that this manipulation of banking it has left us with a legacy of a bunch of ghettos and ghost towns. Um, but here's the rub. Credit unions, by law, were not required to participate in the act. So, while they still may engage in fractional reserve banking, they're usually not participating in this uh, uh, direct government-led destruction of local communities. Um, you may not see it in those harsh terms, but that's essentially what has happened. This much, at least, is laudable on the part of having a credit union. Uh, even here, however, you have to, to research individual institutions closely because some credit unions do participate voluntarily in community improvement programs, and these may be good or bad. I don't know. I haven't researched them myself. Uh, they may or may not be desirable to you to be in, in, uh, indirectly a part of. Uh, some credit unions are actually part of an international organization doing the same thing internationally, which you may or may not wish to be a contributor. Uh, they see it, I think, as charity. Um, you, you may or may not wish to be a part of that. There is the possibility also of alternative currencies. Now, these are not money in the legal sense, of the federal government defines it, but they certainly are money in the practical sense of the way they operate, and they're legally legitimate. Several local systems have existed historically. They, they arose during the Great Depression. Several smaller localized versions still exist today. They're essentially paper-assisted barter systems. They tend to remain local because, since they're not legal tender, and that's good, uh, they require a network of businesses that agree to accept this currency and participate in the circle of trade. Uh, it could be a very viable practice in the future if it became prevalent enough and enough people got involved in it. Uh, for now, they're simply very limited, they're very small, and so they don't have a lot of utility. In short, the best thing an average person can do for now is to buy some gold and silver, to learn more about it, to help spread awareness of the moral evil of fraudulent money and banking that pervades our society and robs from us all. Uh, by these efforts, uh, we are looking long-term. We're hoping that education and preparation and having the courage ourselves to face a contraction of the money supply, having the willingness, willingness to sacrifice through it, uh, will pave a better way for the future. We'll pave the way for a better, more honest system in the future. And as tough as these challenges seem, there are things that we have to look at as moral imperatives for society, certainly biblically speaking. Until we return to honest money, we are, as a society, trashing God's most fundable, fundamental commandments. 
And we've got to realize that God's long-suffering in this regard will not last forever. He will certainly allow our society to run its course of fraud and let those implications pay out, uh, play out in the devastation of society if we don't have the fortitude to reform and turn back to His way of doing things. Thank you.